Strange Stories UK here again. Series 2, Episode 6. I'm calling this one Neville Heath. This podcast is not suitable for children. And I've also uh, moved my recording studio, (laughs) the attic. Uh, It's a bit cold up there, so I'm recording in an office. There may be some background noise as um, I will only record this podcast in one take, as usual. Well, Neville Heath, this is quite an extraordinary story, known by all in 1946, but almost forgotten now. Neville Heath makes an excellent study into a sadistic psychopath who was convicted for more for one murder, known to have committed two, and thought to have murdered more young females. I thought I would deal with the story in chronological order, as I did with uh, the similar story of Ronald True, which the story has strong parallels. A man with a strong personality, who felt entitled and superior, uh, and who had mental health issues, and whose actions resulted in the death of young women. So, Neville George Cleveley Heath was born in Dudley Road, Ilford, on June 6, 1917. He came from a loving family, lower middle class, with extended family living close by. Interestingly, Neville's uncle received a mention in a recent podcast, as he was the Percy Cleverly, who had been walking home with his friend Dora Pittard when Edith Thompson came to them for help after her husband was murdered in the street as they walked. To find out more, listen to the recent Thompson and Bywaters episode of Strange Stories UK. William Heath was Neville's father, and he had been born in 1890 and trained as a copper plate engraver. He changed professions a number of times, later becoming a civil servant and a hairdresser. Bessie Heath was Neville's mother. William was quite astute with money and constantly improving his family's position. Neville's parents claimed that their son was born during an air raid as Gotha bombers bombed Ilford during a night of his birth during World War I. It was not a comfortable birth as it lasted some time and it was thought that Heath's head was damaged during a forceps delivery. These facts being cited for Heath's later actions as his parents searched for a reason for his criminal and psychopathic behaviour. Another uncle on the mother's side had severe mental health problems and had been institutionalised for most of his life. The Heath family moved to Merton, south-west London after the war and had another couple of sons, one son surviving. He was called Mick, or Michael. Neville was very protective of his younger brother who was unable to pronounce Neville's name, calling him Nem giving Neville the family nickname he would be known for for the rest of his life, Nen. Neville realised at an early age that he was good at telling lies, and he also had an acquisitive streak and was sly. His parents caught him stealing items from shops, but he never seemed to be punished. He had a knack of getting away with misdemeanours unpunished. Later it was said that Bessie, his mother, was an overindulgent mother, who in sparing the rod may have spoilt the child. 
1932, the Heaths moved again to Merton Hall Road near Wimbledon, Wimbledon Town Centre. It was a five-bedroom Victorian house backing onto playing fields. The Heaths took in lodgers in order to pay fees to the local grammar school, called Rutledge School. Neville Heath attended Rutledge School from 1929 to 1934. It was a school that was run along the lines of a public school. It followed public school traditions such as having a cadet corps, a competitive health system and uh, rugby rather than football. Schools like Rutledge were designed for people who couldn't afford a public school but considered that the schools provided by local authorities common. One of the main objectives of Rutledge was to teach the boys to speak received pronunciation, talking posh, as an aid to get on in life. Neville Heath yearned for upward mobility. He was a snob. Encouraged by Rutledge School, Heath was to study and learn the mannerisms of his social superiors and exploit them. From an early age, Neville's parents were ambitious for their son and wanted to give him the best start in life. Heath seemed to feel anxiety and even embarrassment about his background, and he always talked up his background. He was later to claim that he attended Eton, or one of the Oxbridge universities. From his teenage years, Neville seemed to have a strong influence over girls. Although he was said to have been an unmitigated liar, a show-off, a swank pot, and all those things that would usually make an unpopular character, everybody seemed to like Heath. He continued to develop a persona as a likeable rogue. However, there were incidents reported that Neville, as a teenager, forced himself on young girls, using his charm and good manners to avoid punishment. This happened after consuming alcohol. It seemed that from an early age, alcohol consumed in large quantities brought on sexual aggression in Heath. But he was able to charm and talk his way out of any complications. Heath wasn't academically strong, and after feigning his leaving exams aged 16 years of age, he started work as a warehouseman, although he dreamed of joining the Royal Air Force, the RAF. During the 1930s, the plane was a symbol of being fast, glamorous and modern. Some pilots were famous, both in real life and fiction. He saw the RAF as his way to succeed in life. And the RAF were recruiting at that time, and they weren't so much interested in qualifications, but in a particular sort of character that helped foster a team spirit. The 25th of November 1935, Heath was aged 18 and he attended an RAF training day where he was given basic flying instructions and on the 25th of March he was invited to start at the training school at RAF Wittering in Northamptonshire as an acting pilot officer. After three months Heath went to RAF Uxbridge for two weeks of drilling and training for mess protocol. The recruits would be measured for their uniforms and mess kit. They were given a £50 grant to cover costs, which was not really enough. Student pilots would live in the mess and dress for dinner each night, except on dress-down Saturday, when blazer and time were permitted. 
After completing the first half of their course, pilots received their wings, which was a badge sewn onto a tunic, left breast pocket. The chief instructor would assess each trainee pilot's ability. Heath was considered above average. On the 24th of August 1936, he was posted to 19 Squadron at RAF Duxbridge near Cambridge. The RAF being formed during World War I was different from the Army and Navy, which were both traditional and class conscious. RAF pilots tended to be louche and eccentric about their dress. They had a casual attitude towards drill and saluting. Junior officers addressed their superiors as Sir on the first meeting of the day, but after that they would use first names. Many of the new recruits were young and immature. They liked larking around, playing pranks, drinking. There were in-jokes and slang, such as bandit for enemy aircraft, beer tokens for money, and oxygen was called whiff, and so on. The service was free from convention, and there was a tendency for understatement, bravado and cheek. 19 Squadron, although only formed in 1915 and disbanded for a time between the wars, had built up quite a history, having 20 flying aces during World War I. A flying ace being a pilot that had shot down at least five enemy aircraft. Also, they flew the fastest planes in the RAF, with the Gloucester Gauntlet, and they were the first squadron to be supplied with uh, Spitfires, supermarine Spitfires. On the 25th of November 1936, Heath was promoted to pilot officer, a commissioned rank and part of the leadership of the RAF. It was at this time he became engaged to Arlene Blakely, who lived near his parents' house in Wimbledon. Although everything seemed to be going well for Heath, he had problems with not having sufficient money to per- pursue the lifestyle he wanted. Unlike most of his brother officers, who came from the major public schools and universities and often had private incomes, Heath was challenged with keeping up with his peers without having the money to do so. Heath was lying about his background and stealing from friends in order to maintain the image and lifestyle that he wanted. On the 15th of March 1937, Heath was transferred to 73 Squadron at Milden Hall, which is now a USA refueling base in Suffolk. On arrival at his new base, his commanding officer at Duxford phoned him regarding a couple of cheques that he'd written to settle debts. These cheques had bounced. And almost unbelievably, instead of sorting the problem out, which was a bank loan not being paid into his account on time, when he expected, Heath ran away. This later proved to be Heath's answer to any difficult situation. His instinct was to run away rather than to explain and solve the problem. Heath ran back to his parents, living openly at Wimbledon, until the 22nd of June 1937, when RAF police came to arrest him for desertion. Heath was taken to Debden Aerodrome to await a court-martial. He was kept under open arrest, giving his word not to abscond. Heath was not popular at camp. He was described as being strange and moody, although this is perhaps not surprising given his position. He did run away again, stealing a brother officer's car and driving to London. 
but he was arrested again and during August 1937 attended his court-martial. Heath was found guilty of going absent without leave and taking an officer's car without permission and he was dismissed from the RAF on the 20th of September 1937. Heath was to give a different interpretation of his dismissal, telling family and friends that he had been guilty of a flying offence, taking an aircraft without permission, in flying it under a bridge. This sounding so much better than the actual offences that he was dismissed for. After dismissal, Heath returned home, borrowing £18 from his fiancée Arlene, who incidentally would never see him again, he drove up country in a hired car, staying at hotels, leaving unpaid bills, cashing worthless cheques, and assuming a new character, Lord Dudley. Police soon tracked him down Heath in Nottingham. Imagine the scene. Heath was drinking and smoking at a bar, being approached by a detective, and he was asked, Are you Lord Dudley? Heath replied, Yes, I am, old man. Well, I'm Detective Inspector Hickman of the CID. Well, in that case, I'm not Lord Dudley. He certainly had an arrogance and confidence to carry out such frauds. In court, Heath tried to justify his actions, saying he had been on a mad spree after the disgrace of his dismissal from the RAF. He was given a lenient sentence by the court, being put on probation at Wimbledon. However, within months, Heath stopped reporting to his probation officer and again set off on a small-time petty theft in Conman and housebreaking expedition. Heath would pretend to be an officer and exploit the deferential trust that the lower-class shop workers placed in the officer class. Heath had no scruples. Strangers, friends, family, they were all cheated by Heath. All of Heath's crimes to this point followed a pattern, usually stealing money or property or pretending to be somebody else. He was a small-time crook with a relentless and acquisitive instinct for money and status. Heath had charm, but he was dishonest, a liar, a thief, who pretended to be a good lad at heart, who had gone off the rails and just needed help and guidance. Heath appealed before the Old Bailey on the 12th of July 1938 and was given three years at a new borstal at Suffolk called Holsley Bay, also known as Holiday Bay. <clears throat> Holsley Bay had been described as more of a public, rural public school than an institution for young offenders. The inmates who worked on market garden agricultural work were regarded as delinquents rather than criminals. Heath wasn't to stay long, as World War II was about to break, and Heath was discharged under emergency regulations along with another 1,750 Borstal boys. Heath enlisted in the army as a private in the Royal Army Service Corps. He was based at Aldershot, was driving a truck. Heath kept his head down and applied himself and made second lieutenant during March 1940 which although lacking the glamour of the flying officer was equal in rank. Heath got engaged again to a local girl, Peggy Dixon, and during June 1940 he was sent to Sarafrand, Palestine, as part of the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, 
in the biggest military base in the area. Heath found his war work there dull and was disappointed that he didn't have to wear a uniform. Heath was writing fantasy letters home, claiming he was seeing all sorts of action and he was going to be transferred to the RAF. Neither claim is being true. Heath was a fantasist who preferred an image he constructed of himself to reality. Heath was also up to his old tricks, writing worthless checks, and he was drawing double pay after stealing a paybook that he was not entitled to. There were also records of Heath's insubordination. During time off, troops often visited Cairo by plane. At the time, Cairo's population was about half a million. It's over 10 million today. And there were no wartime restrictions, rationing or food shortages and a very favourable exchange rate. Cairo was famous for the sex trade. The brothels and red light areas were famous with a variety of services for the most diverse tastes. The brothels on the main streets of Cairo were known as the burqa, and these were tolerated by army authorities. But the back streets and alleyways also had brothels. These were known as the black burqa, and these were out of bounds as anyone going there stood a good chance of being robbed or murdered. When Heath visited Cairo, it's thought that he was attracted to the black burqa brothels, which apart from exhibitions of all sorts of strange sexual acts, including women copulating with animals, there was a room that Heath was interested in called the Amazon Room, where you could do whatever you wanted to the person you had paid for. Heath was interested in beating young girls with whips, the original cost was £50, but Heath bartered it down to £10. At the time in London, a prostitute would charge a pound for sex. Paul Hill wrote a book about Heath, who he had known and had long conversations with during World War II. The book, called Portrait of a Sadist, was published in 1960, after the publishing laws changed to allow its publication, as some of the material was rather risque. It seemed that Heath had a perversion for beating people, or beating women, and in Cairo he developed a taste for this. He would rather beat a woman than have sex. Hill describes Heath as a perfect physical specimen of a man, who women adored. Heath talked of his time in Egypt, mixing with wealthy playboy Egyptians, getting drunk, having blackouts, upsetting women and his hosts. One quote from Heath. I suppose something must have happened. As I went to shave this morning, my face was scratched to hell. Another quote. I felt like getting some bitch tying her down and thrashing the daylights out of her. I do feel like that sometimes. Quite suddenly. Most of them don't seem to mind. You have to pick a girl right. None of those namby pammy milk socks that run money to their mother if you kiss them too hard. Generally speaking, society girls are best as they're used to hard riding, both with horses and men. Another quote. I've thrashed dozens, and they're always too ashamed to make a fuss. They invent all sorts of stories to their friends to explain why they can't swim today. Lots of them don't swim for a month after I'm through with them. Heath talked about the Amazon room, saying that he paid £10 to beat two teenage Greek girls with a variety of different whips. 
Heath then claimed that he was being blackmailed as photographs had been taken of him. Whatever actually happened, and Heath is an unreliable narrator, Heath first witnessed extreme sexual behaviour while in Cairo, and seemed to have developed a taste for it. It does seem that Heath was able to take advantage of the confused state that war causes to give himself time to indulge his fantasies, and he started to go off the rails in the lawless nature of wartime. Heath was absenting himself from his army without permission, pretending that he had to attend medical appointments when it was just really an excuse to indulge himself in bars and brothels. Heath was arrested on a number of charges, lying to his commanding officer, bouncing checks, having a forged paybook. He was court-martialed in Jerusalem on the 18th of July 1941. He was stripped of his rank and sent back to the UK. He was held under close arrest until sent on the SS Multan, a boat which was repatriating wounded officers from Crete, civilian refugees. There were 15 other officers who had been court-martialed and thousands of Italian prisoners of war. Paul Hill was the adjutant on the ship and he told of how Heath caused mayhem while on the boat, seducing the female civilian passengers, including a mother and her naked 17-year-old daughter, fighting over him in a corridor after he was found with a girl in, his, in her cabin, which, in full view of staff and other passengers. Heath was said to be a great raconteur on the voyage, telling, most, telling of the most intimate details concerning the women he had known and succumbed to his advances. He discussed the performance of each woman, saying, for example, that one was good lay if she was ginned up, and this one didn't have a clue what to do, and so on. The point made was that despite his bad taste, many of his avid listeners, avid listeners were women. He drank a great deal, pink gins, he always had a crowd of people around him, and he would say the most outrageous things. Hill thought that Heath got some kind of sexual satisfaction out of the stories that he told. Not everyone took to Heath on board. He was attacked by a wounded officer returning from Crete, who took exception to Heath's comment that he found no funny women flopping on the bed, taking him in their spindly arms. Heath said that a woman was only any good after she'd been warmed up after a hard thrashing. The SS Moulton docked at Durban to take on supplies on the route home, having to sail round the Cape as the Mediterranean was too dangerous a route. After docking, it became apparent that the engine needed repairing and it would take a fortnight. The Italian prisoners of war were transferred to a camp, but everybody else stayed on board. The court-martial officers were also allowed shore leave, which gave Heath the chance to jump ship. Daily life in South Africa was barely affected by World War II. Shortages did cause problems by 1942, but these shortages were insignificant compared to what was happening in the UK. Lipstick and whiskey were hard to come by, but most food was in plentiful supply. Heath posed as Captain Selway of the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders and managed to obtain a loan of £85 from Barclays Bank 
in Durban. And then he proceeded to stay at a number of hotels, always moving on without paying the bill. On the 22nd of December 1941, he volunteered for the South African Air Force, calling himself James Robert Cadogan Armstrong, claiming to have been born in the Cape but brought up in Suffolk in the UK, educated at Eton in Cambridge. And he said he'd flown for the RAF before resigning in 1937. He gave his date of birth as two years older. His application was accepted and he joined 62 Air School at Bluefontein as an instructor. Heath was keen to make a good impression. Within eight weeks he had married into an influential South African family. His wife being the 22-year-old... Elizabeth Hardcastle Rivers, who'd been educated at Rodine School, been to finishing school in Switzerland before coming out of the, the last debutant ball in Johannesburg. Her parents disapproved of Heath, but the young couple eloped and got married. Within two months, Heath had managed to reinvent himself. He'd changed his name by deed poll. He'd taken South African citizenship and married. It seems that Elizabeth had been pregnant when she was married. As a baby boy, Robert Michael Cadogan Armstrong was born on the 2nd of September 1942. Although Heath drank heavily, he seemed to be popular in South Africa. However, the past was to catch up with him, as detectives had pieced together who he was and wanted to charge him with various offences, including fraud and being an illegal immigrant. The immigration authorities indicated that his continued presence in South Africa depended on the South African Air Force, who decided that Heath should be given a second chance on a six-month probation. His father-in-law reluctantly repaid all his debts. Yet again, Heath had got away with it. He was again given the opportunity to rehabilitate himself and redeem himself. By 1944, the Allies were beginning to take the upper hand in the war, and Heath wanted to have some part in the later stages of World War II. His desire to fly again with the RAF was intense, and he applied for a transfer under his new name Armstrong. Heath persuaded his wife to let him go and fight. Whilst he was away, he barely contacted her. The RAF had no idea who it was Heath coming back under a different name, and accepted him, and he joined 180 Squadron at Dunsford Airdrome in Surrey, which flew medium bombers, American two-engine B-25 Mitchell bombers. William Spurrett Fielding Johnson was a squadron leader, and was to become aware of his behaviour, especially after he'd been drinking. Fielding Johnson felt that he was unreliable, When drinking, Heath became arrogant and boastful and ungentlemanly. Fielding Johnson knew all about the pressures that airmen had to cope with and they needed to let off steam. But he felt that Heath's nerve had gone due to operational exhaustion. He thought Heath was having some sort of breakdown and he may have become addicted to the benzodrine, the wakey-wakey pills, better known as speed to keep pilots awake although often abused by pilots who used them for recreational purposes. 
Benzedrine is the chemical base for MDMA, ecstasy, and the body builds up a tolerance, encouraging a higher dosage. Side effects include hyperactivity, grandiosity, euphoria, increased libido, irritability, paranoia, aggression, and psychosomatic disorders. If Heath had been abusing the drug, which is most likely, and drinking heavily, it would explain some of the extreme behaviours noted by Fielding Johnson. During October, 180 Squadron had been making daylight bombing attacks on the town of Vigneo in Holland. Some of Heath's crew had told Fielding Johnson that they did not want to spend time with Heath off duty at night due to his boorish behaviour. On a trip to Vigneo on the 29th of October 1944, one of the crew was unwell and Fielding Johnson decided to take his place and watch Heath working under pressure. After all the bombs had been released during the raid, the aircraft was hit by flak and the plane was disabled. Heath gave the orders to bail out, fortunately over Allied lines. It appears, it appears that one of the crew was having problems with his parachute and Heath made sure that his crew member was safe before bailing out himself. All the crew survived. Getting drunk was a natural reaction for the crew to celebrate surviving, but Heath's extreme behaviour was particularly marked and caused Fielding Johnson, the senior officer, much embarrassment as the crew was a visitor in another mess. It was never actually stated what happened in the mess, but in the past Heath had become aggressive and violent. Fielding Johnson reported the matter, and although the crew all took two weeks survivor, uh, survivor leave, Heath never flew for the RAF again. One positive note for the crew was that they were all now members of the select group called the Caterpillar Club. Aircrew who had bailed out of a disabled aircraft and were saved by their silk parachutes. Hence the Caterpillar Club, named after silkworm caterpillars. The badge was important to Heath, who treasured it. After bailing out over Vigneo, Heath claimed that he'd started to experience blackouts. He was also having sinus trouble, which some thought symptomatic of an underlying psychological problem. It was thought by those who knew him that he was suffering some kind of mental illness. During Christmas 1944, Heath was considered unfit for duty and given sick leave. In the new year, a letter was sent from the Air Ministry to South African Air Force saying that no further flying duties were available for Heath and his secondment with the RAF would cease at the end of January. Heath was repatriated to South Africa where he was told by his wife Elizabeth on returning that she wanted a divorce as she felt with his lack of communication he had effectively abandoned her and his son. Elizabeth was interviewed in 1947 and said that Heath's extreme behaviour was brought on by an excess of whisky. Alcohol made Heath a different person. A dangerous person. He was a Jekyll and Hyde character. Regarding blackouts, alcohol-induced amnesia could result from the amount of alcohol that Heath was known to consume. 
it affects the hippocampus and the brain, leading to memory loss. This aspect may have been complicated by post-traumatic stress following his bailing out over Venia. However, it must be remembered that Heath would try to use any excuse to excuse his behaviour and to try to get out of trouble. Hollywood films of the time often suggested psychoanalyst film plots with included blackouts and memory loss. Heath was a fantasist and he may have identified with some of these film characters using their experiences to build up his perceived image of himself. Hill suggests that Heath was a misogynist as a result of contracting VD or venereal disease, although there's no proof of this. Several doctors who later questioned Heath were convinced that his breakdown and spree of murders was a result of the breakdown of his marriage, which was due to desertion by Heath when he went to join the RAF. It's also possible that Elizabeth found out about his debts, his convictions, his affairs with other women, and deciding that her and her son were much better off without Heath. So Heath was left with nothing at the end of the war. No home, no wife. The future looked bleak. His health and career were on a downward spiral. When Heath was rejected by his wife on his return to South Africa, he reverted to type as a con man living in hotels, leaving unpaid bills and cashing worthless cheques. There were also incidents of blackouts and him being violent towards women. He was eventually arrested and then apart from other crimes he was charged with being absent without leave from the South African Air Force. There was also other trouble brewing as it seemed that Heath had got himself engaged to a 21-year-old Zeta Williams in Nottingham before he had returned to South Africa. All the preparations for the wedding had been made by Zeta's family and when Heath told her that he had to return to South Africa and he would return in three weeks... She never saw him again. Although she did try to contact, he did try to contact her a year later when he returned to the UK. Zeta ignored him. Heath had written to Zeta to say that his wife wouldn't divorce him. Although <laughs> that's exactly what she did want. Zeta was pregnant, as Heath had said that they were engaged just to get her into bed. Zeta's father was trying to sue Heath for breach of promise. When Heath's case for fraud came to trial in Durban, South Africa, he gave a sob story about his divorce having no money being a reason for his criminal actions. The court found Heath guilty of fraud and he was given a sentence of hard labour or a fine. But Heath got away with it again as the sentence was suspended for two years, giving him time to pay off his debts and the fine. Elizabeth attended the court and paid his fine and paid all his debts on the understanding that he wouldn't give her of a divorce and he would have no further contact with their son. While waiting for his court-martial from, from the South African Air Force to be organised, he continued to make poor decisions, committing fraud, stealing money from fellow airmen. Heath claiming that such acts being committed when he was suffering blackouts. Heath was placed in police detention, Bell refused, and he was deported as an undesirable alien from South Africa.
They just wanted rid of, it, rid of him. Heath sailed from Cape Town on the 17th of January 1946, and he appeared to be having blackouts on the journey on the way back. The month Heath was to revive back in the UK, the New Statesman magazine was asking about servicemen returning to the UK, in particular RAF men, with their specialised training, their sense of adventure, their complete lack of earning power in a post-war Britain. What did their future hold? Many of these servicemen were trained killers. They're returning en masse to, a change, to change communities. Newspapers were reporting cases of servicemen returning and killing estranged wives, unable to settle in a post-war peaceful world. His only option seemed to be returned to Wimbledon at his parents' house. On arriving in Britain, Heath began drinking heavily again and booked into the Strand Palace Hotel in central London. During this time, an electrician employed at the hotel was passing Heath's room, number 506, and he heard moaning, which disturbed him to such an extent that he contacted the head porter to open the open the door to the room to find Heath whipping a girl spread-eagled and tied to the bed. The girl appeared unconscious. The room was booked by Captain James Cadogan Armstrong of the South African Air Force. Heath tried to bluff his way out of the matter. The woman, Pauline Miriam Breeze, just wanted to leave the hotel without any fuss and refused to press charges. The hotel was just as happy to let the matter go with a minimum of fuss. The head porter thought Breeze was a prostitute and ordered them both to leave. The hotel considered the matter as awkward and embarrassing rather than serious. Too much alcohol, lowering inhibitions. The story about Pauline Breeze only came to light after Heath was standing trial, suggesting it was not an isolated incident. In March 1946, that's March 1946, Heath was arrested and convicted of wearing a uniform and decorations which he was not entitled to in Wimbledon. He was fined £10. It's not known how Heath was managing for money at this time. Probably a little fraud, handouts from his family. He was studying to obtain a commercial flying licence. His father had agreed to finance Heath in his bid to become a commercial pilot. And during the April... And he wrote to a number during the April he wrote to a number of companies seeking employment as a pilot as soon as he'd passed his licence. During mid May there was another narrow escape from prosecution when he and a woman friend had booked into another West Hunt hotel. During the night the hotel detectives had to enter the room with a pass key after a woman was heard screaming. Again a woman was tied spread eagle to the bed with a whip marks on her body. Standing over her, and said to be in a manacled frenzy, was Heath, who had to be forcibly restrained while the woman was released. She too refused to press charges, saying that the scandal of being with another man would be too much for her. Again, the hotel was just wanted to avoid scandal and told them both to leave. It seems that whips, uh, Heath's whipping fetish was becoming out of control. In early June, Heath continued his studies and exams to become a pilot, and he became friendly with a girl called Jill Harris. They went on a few dates, and on the 8th of June 1946, which was VE Day, 
he called at her home and took her out to celebrate. Heath was staying at the Red Lion pub in Worthing, and they eventually went there after drinking all night. When ordering late drinks at the Red Lion, the manageress thought Heath's intention was to get Jill drunk and take her to his room. She was determined to make sure this did not happen. Heath was annoyed, and they left to attend a firework display at a local park, where Heath attempted rape. Again, nothing happened to Heath, as Jill just wanted to forget the episode. But again, Heath had been drinking all day, and then attempted sexual assault. And again, no charges were made against him. His victims could not bear the shame and publicity, choosing to forget the experience. Heath returned to his parents the next day and continued studying. However, that week, Heath was informed by the Air Ministry that as he had been dismissed by the RAF, he would be not be able to be considered for a commercial pilot, even though he had passed all the exams and tests to date. Heath wrote to the Ministry begging for a chance, but there was no reply. This seemed to have acted as a trigger for self-destruction for Heath, who travelled up to London on the 15th of June. He swindled a journalist who was drinking in a bar in Fleet Street out of £30, promised to fly him to Denmark, when there was no way that he would be able to do this. The same day, June the 15th, 1946, Yvonne Simmons, who was serving in the Women's Royal Navy Services, was with friends at a dinner, at a dinner dance at a pub in Chelsea. She met Heath there. He was calling himself Colonel Jimmy Heath. He charmed Yvonne with his wartime stories and suggested that they went for an after-dinner drink at the Panama Club in South Kensington, where he was a member. Heath tried to charm Yvonne into his bed that night, but had to settle for a date with her the next evening. The next day when they met, Yvonne, innocent, inexperienced, was swept along by what seemed a whirlwind romance with Heath. An officer friend of Heath's was to say later, women were fascinated by Heath, such was his magnetism. It was embarrassing to be in his company when there were girls about. Neville used his tried and tested technique of proposing marriage in an attempt to sleep with her, and so it was arranged. They went to the Pembridge Court Hotel, a private hotel that had a good class of clientele. That night in room four, Yvonne lost her virginity to Heath. Heath wanted Yvonne to stay at the hotel longer with him, but she had promised her parents that she would be returning to Worthing that day. She gave Heath her address, Warren Road, Swandine, on the edge of Worthing, and her phone number. Yvonne was wildly excited to be engaged to Jimmy and was looking forward to her parents meeting up with him. Heath kept his hotel room, but returned to his parents' home in Wimbledon on Monday the 17th of June. As on Tuesday the 18th of June, he was supposed to be completing his pilot's examinations. Heath left his parents' house on the Tuesday morning, but did not sit the exam. Instead went on a massive pub crawl, part of, with, part of which was with Leslie Terry, a restaurant owner and petty criminal, who was one of his nighttime drinking friends. They eventually ended up at the Trevor Arms in Knightsbridge. At the pub that night was Marjorie Gardner, 
who had been stood up on a date. Marjorie had met with Heath in the past but did not know him very well. Marjorie was part of the Bohemian Chelsea set. She had a young daughter but was estranged from her husband who was an alcoholic. Marjorie was 32 years of age. Heath introduced her to the people that he was with. Later they split off by themselves, Marjorie and Heath. They dined and went for last orders at the Panama Club. Then they returned to the Pembridge Court Hotel. Marjorie had a comfortable upbringing. She had a good education in Sheffield. And she was a trained and talented artist. But she had no regular income. She had been attracted to London mixing with a colourful crowd described as bohemian. Artists, petty criminals. Marjorie turned her hand to anything and had been a film extra which seemed to interest the newspapers later. She was a popular figure in the Chelsea social scene, known for wearing a leopard print fur coat. She mixed with petty criminals and other outsiders, although she herself had never been in trouble with the police. Marjorie was described as headstrong. She had fallen out with her parents over the undesirable country that, uh, company that she kept. Marjorie had married Peter Gardner, who had trained as an officer at Sandhurst, and who was estranged from his family. Peter seemed unable to hold down a job. He was troubled and needy. He was an alcoholic and highly strung. And Peter had spent time in prison for stealing. Marjorie had done everything she could to make the marriage work, but he mistreated her. He gave her venereal disease, and she thought he'd gone mad, so the marriage did fail. The daughter was born in May 1944, Melody Ann, who was cared for in a nursery, a full-time nursery, her grandmother paying the bills. A friend of Marjorie said, Marjorie was a very straightforward sort of girl, there was no harm in her at all. She was very quiet. She never made male acquaintanceships for money. She was content to spend a night with a man after a few drinks for company. No one can be sure of what happened that night, but he said that when he awoke, he saw a body of a woman on the bed. Everything seemed to be like a dream or a nightmare. His instinct was to get go away anywhere, so he left for Brighton. Leslie Terry, his drinking partner that evening, later said that by the time Heath had met with Marjorie, he must have consumed 24 pints of beer. And after that, Heath and Marjorie went on drinking for another four hours. Heath did not appear drunk. Marjorie was known to consume alcohol on a regular basis. It was likely both were in a state where the aphrodisical effects of alcohol and the lowering of inhibitions induced by it were likely to have added to the situation. But Marjorie's body was found on the Friday afternoon, the 21st of June. She'd suffered appalling injuries. Her breasts had been badly bitten. Whip marks were across her body. There was blood everywhere. The pathologist, Keith Simpson, was summoned who discovered that lash wounds were made with a whip with distinctive diamond weave pattern. A poker had been thrust into her body orifices and savagely rotated, probably while Marjorie was still alive. The actual cause of death being suffocation. She had been tied and gagged. 
Simpson said there was no signs of a struggle. At first, the police thought there had been an attempted abortion. An inspection of the hotel register revealed that the room had been let to a lieutenant colonel and Mrs. N.G.C. Heath, giving the address of Black Hill Cottages, Romsey. Early Saturday morning, a message was sent to all police stations in England, giving a description of Heath, saying he was wanted for questioning, giving his details and the names that he was known by. Meanwhile, newspapers were given the story full coverage, saying that a handsome ex-RAF playboy had murdered a bohemian vampish film extra. It seemed strange to the police, though, that Heath had signed his name in the hotel register, indicating that the murder had not been planned. Although Heath's description was given in the newspapers, no photographs were allowed to be shown. The police went to Heath's parents in Wimbledon and searched his bedroom, taking away his address book and a collection of whips. Meanwhile, in Brighton on Friday the 21st of June, 1946, Heath phoned to Simmons, saying he'd come down and wanted to meet her parents. Heath booked into Worthing's Ocean Hotel, lucky to find a room, as Worthing was very busy despite the wet June weather. Heath was not dressed in uniform. He was telling stories about starting a business, sending aircraft abroad. On the Saturday, Yvonne and Heath went socialising in pubs in the, in the town. In the evening, they went to the Blue Peter Club at Amering, a small town along the coast from Worthing. Heath met Yvonne's parents, told them a pack of lies, and they gave Heath permission to marry their daughter. During that day, Heath had told Yvonne about a woman who had been murdered at the Pembridge Court Hotel, where they, they had stayed the previous week. Then he told her that it had happened in the room that he had booked, saying that he'd let a friend use the room to spend time with a female, who was the, the murder victim. It's unknown what Yvonne made of the extraordinary story. It wasn't until she returned home on the Saturday night when she thought it through, and it didn't seem believable. The next morning, when the Sunday newspapers arrived at the house, it seemed that Heath was front-page news, giving his name and description. Yvonne's parents were stunned. She tried to explain to her parents that what Heath had told her. She phoned Heath at his hotel and told him that her parents had read the newspapers and were very worried. Heath replied, Yes, I thought they would be. And then he told her not to worry, and he had a car and he was going to drive to Scotland Yard straight away, and he would return to Worthing that evening after he'd sorted things out. The next time Yvonne saw Heath was in court, when the story of her whirlwind romance and the loss of her virginity were to be evidence in a sensational court case. Heath left Worthing in a hurry, leaving his possessions behind at the Ocean Hotel including all the national newspapers for Saturday the 22nd of June that carried the story of Marjorie's murder that Heath had bought to read about what had happened and what the police knew. On Monday the 24th of June 1946, after reading the description of Heath, the staff at the Ocean Hotel contacted the police, who found the Simmons contact details and went to interview, the police went to go and interview Yvonne and her parents. The police went through Heath's address book. Many of the names of women 
Many now married were not keen to discuss Heath. The police were convinced that a woman friend was hiding Heath. Then the police were astounded to receive a letter at Scotland Yard from Heath. The letter told of how Heath had let the room to a friend of his to use and when he returned to the room he found the body of a woman and ran. He gave a description of the man who supposedly he let use the room. He told the police that he could be contacted through the personal columns of the Daily Telegraph. Sunday the 23rd of, 23rd of June 1946. Heath arrived in Bournemouth at the Tollard Royal Hotel on the cliff top. He was calling himself Group Captain Robert Brook. I beg your pardon, Group Captain Rupert Robert Brook, saying he required accommodation for a week. Bobby Brook, as he was known as, proved popular with the guests and staff at the hotel. In particular, he made friends with a Peter Raylat from Haywards Heath, an army captain recently demobbed. Rylat and Heath explored Bournemouth together over the next six days. They chatted on many subjects, not least the hunt for Neville Heath, as the case was in the newspapers every day. Heath, acting as Brooke, told Rylat that he knew Heath quite well, and he wasn't such a bad chap. A new guest at the Tolland Royal Hotel seemed to have had an unsettling effect on Heath. Peggy Waring a 37-year-old divorcee from London. She and Heath were attracted to each other. He was desperate to sleep with her, but she kept him at arm's length. Heath's feelings seemed so intense that he struggled to control himself in her company. By Saturday, the 29th, Heath's needy and jealous behaviour towards her made Waring leave Bournemouth. As he left, Heath said to her, "'You've won yourself a magnificent victory.' I only hope you congratulate yourself on Monday. On Friday the 28th of June, 21-year-old Doreen Marshall, who served as a wren during the war, was arriving for a holiday in Bournemouth, booked by her father to recuperate from a recent illness. She was supposed to have attended with her sister that cried off at the last moment, so Doreen booked in alone at the Norfolk Hotel. The night before she left her home at Pinner, North London, she'd been looking at the newspaper reports of the murder of Marjorie Gardner with her mother. The article was not permitted to print a photograph of Heath. Doreen was a petite, quiet girl who didn't have boyfriends, but she was attractive and stylish. On Wednesday the 3rd of July, while walking along the promenade, Doreen met Group Captain Rupert Brooke, and he invited her for tea at the Tolland Royal Hotel. Doreen was said to be quite lonely during her stay. After tea, Brooke, or Heath, suggested that they met later that evening for dinner. And as she had, some, as she had no other plans, Doreen said she would be delighted to. Doreen returned to the Tolland Royal Hotel sometime after 7pm, wearing a plain black silk frock and a lemon yellow distinctive box coat, pearl necklace and diamond ring. The diamond ring was a 21st birthday present from her parents. Dinner was served at 7.30. Heath ordered a magnum of champagne, most of which he drank during dinner. After dinner, in the lounge, Heath continued to drink, 
enact in a rather boorish manner. At about 11pm, Doreen was making it clear that she wished to return to her hotel, and a taxi was ordered just before midnight, but Heath managed to cancel it. It was clear that Heath had said something to unsettle Doreen, as several people commented on how pale and tired she looked. It's likely that Heath had been pressurising her to come to his room with, with him. Eventually, Doreen managed to leave the hotel. Heath was to escort her to her hotel, which was about 20 minutes' walk away. The night porter unlocked the door to let them out. He said, See you in half an hour. Doreen corrected him by saying, He'll be back in quarter of an hour. The night of the 3rd of July in Bournemouth had seen thunderstorms. The night porter had to, did not have to unlock the front door to let Heath back into the hotel. However, that morning, on checking his room between 4 and 4.30am, he discovered Heath asleep in bed. Heath claimed that he'd used a ladder to get into his room that the workman had left outside. He claimed it was a joke to trick the night porter, although it's more likely that Heath did not want anyone to know what time he returned to the hotel. At the Norfolk Hotel on the, on the morning of the 4th of July, it was noticed that Doreen had not come down for breakfast. Friday the 5th of July, Heath went to a pawn shop in central Bournemouth to pawn a lady's diamond ring for which he was given £5. Around the same time, the proprietor of the Norfolk Hotel was reporting to the police that a guest, Miss Doreen Marshall, had not been seen since the evening of the 3rd of July. She seemed to have disappeared, leaving all her clothes and possessions and money in the hotel safe. The police rang Doreen's parents to inform them that their daughter was missing. Heath had not been acting as confident self at the hotel. Several guests had noticed small things that seemed off. The hotel staff had also noticed odd things, such as items burnt in the fire grate. And Heath, acting suspiciously, tried to dump items. In time, it was realised that Doreen had spent the evening of the 3rd of July at the Tolland Royal Hotel. Doreen's father had phoned the hotel manager at the Tolland, asking about his daughter. He, the manager thought of his guest in the lemon coat and asked him about that evening. But Brooke replied jocularly, Oh no, I've known that lady for a long time. She doesn't come from Pinner. The manager suggested that he should contact the police as the matter had become very serious. Heath did contact the police, asking to speak to the person in charge for the search for Doreen. The police asked Heath to come to the station. On the way to the station, Heath pawned a lady's glass and metal fob watch with a Swiss movement. He was offered three pounds for it. At around the same time, a group of schoolboys had found Doreen's handbag behind a beach hut. Heath attended Bournemouth Police Station at about 5.30 and spoke to Detective Constable Souter, confirming that Doreen had spent the evening of the 3rd with him at the Tolland Royal Hotel. Heath told a misleading story about Doreen, <clears throat> but he had appeared honest and upfront to Souter. But as Heath was leaving, Doreen's father and sister, Joan, arrived at the police station. Heath's body language was giving him away as he seemed unsettled by Joan. 
Doreen's sister had a very strong resemblance to to Joan. Doreen's father felt that he had a sickening conceit and was sure that he knew more about his daughter's disappearance. As Heath talked to Mr and Mrs Marshall, Souter felt that he recognised Heath and asked Heath to come and have a look at a photo at the police station that had been circulated of Heath. Souter detained Heath on a hunch. Souter was taking a gamble as Heath was pretending to be Group Captain Brooke and he seemed to be a gentleman and at that time gentleman's word were usually, was usually accepted. Souter got on the phone to Scotland Yard and spoke to Reg Spooner, who was leading the search for Heath. Spooner told him not to let him go, and he was on his way down from London. Detective Inspector Gates told Heath that he was going to be searched. Nothing incriminating was found on Heath, but on searching his hotel room at the Tolland, some damning evidence was found. One half of a first-class rail ticket to London, issued on the 28th of June, which was the day that Doreen travelled down to Bournemouth, and there was a railway cloakroom ticket in the left luggage office, issued on the 23rd of June, the day that Heath arrived in Bournemouth. The cloakroom ticket was redeemed at Bournemouth West Railway Station. The case opened to reveal a leather luggage holder with the name Heath and a leather whip with a diamond weave pattern with bloodstains. There was no doubt they had Neville Heath, the most wanted man in Britain at the time. The story that Health had told the police collapsed as checks were made. Although continuing to deny it when he was told he was going to be tamed and detained and charged, Heath replied, Oh, all right. When a thorough search was made of Heath's room in the Tolland Royal Hotel, 49 handkerchiefs were found. These belonged to women and were often monogrammed with lipstick stains. It was thought that they were souvenirs of conquests. A single pearl was found on the left-hand pocket of Heath's jacket. Heath was then identified by witnesses in the ID parades he had to attend, and he was charged with the murder of Marjorie Gardner. With Heath under arrest, the disappearance of Dory Marshall was upgraded to a murder inquiry. The police announced that they were not looking for anyone else in connection with the case. The newspapers implied a connection between the two cases without actually stating it, putting the, the news stories side by side on the front page. The story had fired the public's imagination and it seemed the whole country was waiting to see what was going to happen next. Sunday, the 7th of July, 1946. Kathleen Evans, who lived with her parents, took her spaniel dog for a walk. She lived at the Pinewood Road, which ran parallel with the beach and was accessed by Brankston Dean Chine, a heavily pine-wooded gorge that led down to the sandy beach. Near some thick rhododendron bushes, she saw swarms of flies. She told her father of what she saw when she returned home and they both went to investigate. Mr Evans approached the bushes and saw a yellow coat, like the one mentioned in the newspapers of the missing Doreen Marshall. They went to phone the police. By the time the police arrived at about 8.45, it was dusk. The police closed the chine 
and they put a police guard there. The next morning, the police discovered the body of Doreen. The sight was so awful and so badly mutilated, some officers vomited. The body was crawling with maggots. Near the body, they found 27 pearl beads that matched the pearl bead found in Heath's jacket. 30 yards from the body, police found three quarters of a woman's head of hair that had been violently pulled out. Doreen's body had been subject to a frenzied sex attack of shocking brutality. She died from loss of blood after her throat was cut, completely severing the carotid archery. Doreen's fingers had been cut to the bone as she grabbed the knife blade, fighting off Heath. He had raped her, and after she died, he had mutilated her vagina and anus and breasts, with similar actions he'd carried out on Marjorie. Doreen's body was taken to Paul Mortuary, where Mr Marshall had the task of identifying his daughter. The police tried to work out the sequence of events. They thought that Heath had tried everything to have Doreen agree to have sex with him, but she'd been resolute, and as a result of the, her rejection, he'd lost control. After he killed her, he took a diamond ring and watch, and as he was covered in blood, he washed himself off in the sea, where he probably threw away the murder weapon into the water. He may have dried himself with his shirt and underwear, which was later burnt in the grate of his hotel room. He would have taken anything of value from Dorian's handbag and then threw the handbag behind the beach huts where they were later discovered by the schoolboys. Later Heath was to say that he had no recollection of going to Branxton Shine with Doreen. He'd been drinking heavily, but not as much as he had before killing Marjorie. Heath claimed that he was lighting a cigarette and as he flicked the match away he saw blood on his hands. He knew that he'd been with, at the hotel with Doreen. He knew he left with Doreen, but he did not know where she was or what had happened. He thought something dreadful must have happened, as he had her watch and some of her other possessions. It was late, and it was quiet. I didn't feel like talking to anyone, not even the night porter, who I was friendly with, so I climbed a ladder to my room through the window. Through the window. It does seem strange that Heath killed Doreen after spending all afternoon and evening with her in front of many witnesses. It seems that murder was without motive, other than Doreen refusing his advances. It's unlikely the murder was planned, but the ferocity does seem to suggest that Heath had lost all control. There are a number of letters that Heath wrote to his parents after his arrest and the discovery of the second body while he was being held in Brixton Prison, London. He doesn't seem very concerned over his actions or the victims, other than the embarrassment caused to his family. He seems very interested in selling his story for the right price, so he could pay off his debts. When the prison authorities discovered his plan to sell his story, they explained to Heath that he would not be allowed to do this, although he managed to smuggle the story out in letters to friends and family which were later printed in a newspaper after the trial. Heath was said to get on well with everybody in jail. He acted pretty much as if he was back at the RAF base. He read lots of pulp fiction, 
and society magazines, and he chain-smoked. Heath was anxious to get a decent suit for his court case, and his friends bought him a £20 off-the-pair grey chalk-striped suit. Heath was to be defended by case, uh, King's counsel J.D. Caswell. The prosecution was led by Anthony Hawke. Under the terms of English law at the time, Heath could only be tried for one indictment at a time. Hawke felt that the Marjorie Gardner murder was a better, had a better chance of murder, a murder verdict, as clearly the Doreen Marshall murder was so grotesque that there was a greater likelihood of Heath being found insane. While waiting for trial, Heath was questioned by several medical officers. Dr Hubert, the senior medical officer at Wormwood Scrubs Prison, was the expert witness for the defence. Dr Grierson, the senior medical officer at uh, Brixton, was the expert witness for the prosecution. During interviews, Heath admitted that some time before the murders, he had been conscious of an impulse to react in a certain way in sexual relationships, although he wouldn't give any further details. Heath's mother had said that her son was highly strong as a boy and had been particularly upset after seeing an airman's head have his head cut off by a propeller. In her opinion, he wasn't insane, but his brain had gone. She also gave the circumstances of his difficult birth as a possible reason for his extreme behaviours. Grierson questioned Heath closely about any sadistic impulses, but Heath said he was not aware of any, and when previous lovers of Heath were questioned, there was no evidence of any perverse conduct. The case was scheduled for the Old Bailey, the Central Law Courts, for September the 23rd. It was expected to last four days, and it was eagerly anticipated by the press and the public. There were all-night queues for the few seats in the public gallery at court number one, despite the police saying that all-night queues were to be banned. The judge was Mr Justice Morris, and this was to be his first big murder trial. Day one started with a short opening speech by the prosecution barrister, Anthony Hawke. It was clear that he intended to dismiss any defence of partial insanity and that Heath was responsible for his actions before blacking out and then not being in control of any of his actions after he blacked out. That was the partial insanity plea that he was anxious to avoid. Witnesses were called, including Yvonne Simmons, who attended court with her father. The prosecution would have liked to have spared Yvonne the ordeal of having to be a witness and facing Heath in court, but her evidence was considered to be too important. Yvonne's family would move from the area after the case, and she moved abroad for the rest of her life. Day two, Caswell opened for the defence. He wanted to claim partial insanity, claiming that it was incredible to think that the motiveless crime had any reason apart from madness. Caswell was trying to show a progressive madness, but in truth he did not do a very good job. His star witness, Dr Hubert, who was a major authority on the psychotic and psychiatric medicine, gave a confused and inconsistent performance in the witness box. 
and he was destroyed by the prosecution. In less than a year after his performance in the wetness box, Hubert committed suicide in the bathroom. He was probably a drug addict, and it was unknown if his, if his suicide was related to his appearance in court. In retrospect, there seemed to be a number of areas that Caswell could have stated as being possible reasons for Heath's behaviour. Although he seemed to realise this during the trial, he was unable to present them in court. On the third day of the trial, one of the two female jurors asked questions that perhaps should have been asked by Caswell. One, was Heath financially embarrassed? Two, had Heath been drinking on the night of the murders? And three, was there anything in Heath's present mental condition that may have affected his brain recently? The questions were battered away by the judge, Mr Justice Morris, who seemed to attach little importance to them. However, it could be answered that each of the questions were relevant to Heath's behaviour before the murders. With no money, he had promised to fly a journalist to Denmark, knowing that he could not carry out his promise. He drank away his fee of £30, knowing that he was going to be found out. There was also his failed attempt to become a commercial pilot. He had lied to his parents, telling them that he had passed his exams. He would soon, they would soon find out that was not true. Heath had reached breaking point and hardly cared what happened to him, preferring to drink to forget. He had developed psychological problems during the war years, exacerbated by the bailing out of his air aircraft over Venlo. And worst of all for him, his divorce and having no contact with his son. None of this was mentioned in court, although Heath's claims of memory loss and blackouts were never mentioned in court. In his closing speech, Caswell did reference the possible causes of Heath's behaviour, his experiences during the war, and how they may have impacted on his personality. It has been suggested that having lost all power and control, in most respects of his life, he felt that the only true control he had was during sexual intercourse, and when women rejected him, he felt that he'd lost everything, and he became incredibly angry. In his relationship with Peggy Waring at the hotel, he had exhibited physical symptoms at the thought of rejection, such as unnatural excitement and the loss of self-control. His eyes went wild and his whole body shook with emotion and he had to leave the room to be away from Peggy. It seems that at times Heath was unable to control his sexual desires, and at such times he was a danger to women. The judge in his summing up said that the laws of insanity were not to be used as a get-out-of-jail card free. The jury didn't take long to find Heath guilty, less than an hour, with no recommendation for mercy. So the death sentence was passed. It seemed to be the sentence that the public wanted. Heath refused to trust, or I beg your pardon, Heath refused to meet with his parents after his sentence, saying that he wanted them to remember him as he was before the trial. He said that his only regret, regret was that he had been unworthy of his parents. For the families of Marjorie and Doreen, there was little explanation to Heath's actions. Now that Heath had been found guilty and would probably be dead within the month, the press printed a 
various sensational stories that they'd come across, regardless if they were true. A condemned man would not survive long enough to fight a libel suit. The press hinted that Heath may have been guilty of other murders and the sexual assaults. There was also the presumption that Marjorie was in some ways culpable for her own death as a result of her bohemian lifestyle, which translated as loose morals. There were some untrue and misguided stories that accused her of being a masochist. Throughout the trial, both victims were discussed in Hollywood-style clichés. Marjorie Gardner as the vampish femme fatale and Doreen Marshall as the innocent virgin. Several papers argued that Scotland Yard's ban on his photograph being published while he was a fugitive cost Doreen Marshall her life, which was a fair point as it was known that Doreen had read the article about Heath with her mother. And if a photograph had been printed, she would have been on her guard over anyone that resembled the photograph. Several newspapers ran comparisons between Heath's case and that of Ronald True, another fair point. True managed to get life in Broadmoor after a similar crime. He was ex-RAF, came from an influential family, and there were suggestions that there were different rules for different members of the, the population. There were similarities with Gordon Cummings, another RAF member, training for air crew. He had illusions of grandeur, and he murdered four women in a six-day period, mutilating their sex organs with a can opener. Heath was to be executed at 9am on Wednesday the 15th of October. The executioner said Heath faced death bravely with no fuss. Twenty minutes after he was hanged, Madame Tussauds opened and Heath's wax figure was already on display in the Chamber of Horrors. A couple of weeks after the murder, Bessie Heath, Heath's mother, gave an interview to the People newspaper. She said that she thought her son was possessed by the devil when he carried out the murders, as he had always been such a normal, sensitive child, and since their son's arrest, friends have stood by them and they have received hundreds of letters of sympathy from strangers. After Marjorie's death, her daughter Melody was adopted by her grandmother, who insisted that Melody's father, Peter Gardner, had nothing to do with her upbringing. Peter was to die from cirrhosis of the liver a year later, in May '47, Melody had a happy childhood, apart from finding out about her mother's uh, when she was 17 by browsing a true crime book and then coming across the death of her mother in a graphic but inaccurate detail. Melody later married an army officer and had four children. After Doreen's death, relations between Doreen's sister Joan and her mother broke down, the mother Grace blaming Joan for not accompanying her sister to Bournemouth for the holiday. Joan also couldn't forgive herself. In 1954, uh, Joan had a daughter of her own, but was an overprotective and nervous about the daughter called Julia. Julia felt stifled until Joan explained the reasons why she was so protective. Joan passed away in August 1998. Neville Heath's brother Mick joined the RAF in 1947, but found it difficult and left in 1948. He became a telephone engineer and died in 1984. In South Africa, Elizabeth remarried 
after destroying any evidence she ever knew Heath, although she claimed to have no bitterness towards him, saying there was much good in him. Her son Robert had a successful career, happy marriage with children and grandchildren. And so ends today's story. I've made um, heavy use from a book called uh, Handsome Brute by what's the name? Sean O'Connor, a very useful book, and a couple of other books, including the Hill book. Uh, I'd like to thank Damselfly for providing the background music, and I'd like to thank you all for listening, and I'd like, until next time, to say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>